Welcome back to the Trap One Podcast. This week we're looking at a different facet of Doctor Who's 60th anniversary, one of the six volumes of Decades books, which were released a little while ago. We're starting at the beginning with the 60s volume, Imaginary Friends by Jacqueline Rayner. Joining me are my own imaginary friends, US Jason and Mark. Welcome. Hello. Wait, we're friends? <laughs> <laughs> I will admit that uh, Smudge is sitting right here next to me, <clears throat> and Smudge on camera, you can see her as much as you can see me. She looks adorable on camera. Do not be fooled by the placid demeanor. Uh, <laughs> she has been hacking my arm for the last few minutes. So. I can see thoughts in those eyes, evil thoughts. <laughs> you hear me yelp during the podcast, that is not my review of Imaginary Friends, that is Smudge trying to bite me, so bring that out there. So it just occurred to me, as, as I introduce you as U.S. Jason, we may need uh, a sort of sobriquet to, to differentiate the two marks, like English mark and Scottish mark, or something like that. So we'll uh, we'll uh, we'll see how we go. Mark, fear. you live like thirty seconds from the Scotland border. I'm surprised you don't have more of a Scottish burr. Yeah, I know. there should be a bit more Olchai Hootsmon, but <laughs> 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 but my, but my granny encouraged me to not be quite so thick in my Scottish accent. <laughs> My New York accent is not nearly as pronounced as it was when I was growing up in the 70s. There's a surviving audio of me in 1978 reading my then-favorite book, and my accent was a lot thicker than it is now. So if you think my New York accent is thick now, you should have heard me back in the day. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's funny how I can change. <laughs> because I just don't have an accent. Uh, whenever I hear myself back on a podcast, I think I just sound completely normal. So. Mm. Uh, it's everybody else that has the accent. <laughs> 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 so brief note before we start talking about the book is that there will be spoilers we're going to talk about the whole book as usual so if you haven't read it yet uh, and you intend to please uh, please do that before you listen so yeah imaginary friends they're, they're very sort of handsome volumes these as well they're, they're nice hardback um, I say I've only got one so far, but I imagine uh, you know, set on the shelf looks looks quite nice as well. Yes, I, I can attest. Yes, they do look very pretty together. <laughs> I have the Kindle edition. Aha! Uh-huh. Oh, nice. This is the story of the of the Billing family in 1963, living in the fictional town of Barringdean, and the middle child Jerry has recently got lost on a trip to London and had some kind of an incident in a junkyard, uh, which uh, which kicks off the whole story. We've got a guest reading by Suki from the Around the Console podcast, uh, which we think sets the scene very nicely. Hello, my name is Suki Kark, and I'm going to be reading a little bit from uh, Doctor Who Imaginary Friends by Jacqueline Rayner. 1963, Mommy brings in a glass of milk, a gold-top sword, that's got lots and lots of cream and is only for special occasions or when you're ill. But not the sort of ill where you cough a lot and drink glucosate. How are you feeling, darling? Mummy says. And I don't know what to say. Because I am not poorly, really, but I still feel confused about what happened in London today. Mummy asks if I would like her to read a story. And I say, yes, please. Can I have Winnie the Pooh? So she goes away to the playroom where the books are and comes back and reads to me from the very beginning where Edward Bear comes downstairs, bump, 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 behind Christopher Robin. 
I don't have a teddy bear. I think it would be nice to have one, especially one you can have adventures with. Now Mummy is reading my favourite story, the one where Winnie the Pooh floats up into the sky with a balloon to try to get honey from the bees. There is a funny picture in the book of a big round balloon with a small bear hanging underneath it. My head is too tired to keep my eyes open, but it doesn't matter because I've seen the picture lots of times and I can imagine it as I lie there and listen. Bedtime stories are my favourite thing. It's like Mummy is giving me a hug with her voice. Isn't that fine, shouted Winnie the Pooh down to you. What do I look like? You look like a bear holding on to a balloon, you said. And tomorrow I kill many bears. You all have warm skins. I say tomorrow you will rub your hands together and hold them to the dry sticks and ask all to send you fire and the bears will stay warm in their own skins. All of a sudden I am really, really cold and the air smells funny, like on a farm with cows and it's night and there aren't any street lights anywhere. It's a man who is shouting, a man with a beard who's wearing animal skins like the waxwork of a caveman caveman in the museum and he's standing on a rock and shouting at other people wearing animal skins. There's another man too, the old man from the junkyard. He doesn't have a beard or animal skins. He's got long white hair and a sort of Sunday suit with checked trousers. Then another caveman grabs him and tells him to make fire. And I'm scared, but I say, please don't hurt him. They don't hear me. And I shout, please don't hurt him. But they still ignore me. I suppose because I am only a little boy, even though I am seven next month. Then the caveman put us all in a cave, full of bones, and there are people bones. Then I wake up. If you wake up, then what you woke up from must have been a dream. But it did feel very real, like how the things in the junkyard seemed real. I wonder what will happen when I fall asleep tonight. Thank you very much, Sucky, for that excellent reading. Please do check out the Around the Console podcast once you're up to date with Trap 1, of course. So yeah, this uh, the, the the story starts there. We get the idea that um, that Jerry is uh, somehow connected to the TARDIS occupants from from the very beginning of the series. He keeps every night he has a dream, and every dream is an episode of of season one <laughs> of Doctor Who. Uh, so it's it really sort of I think taps into that that childhood thing of being a Doctor Who fan in a lot of ways, and I think also of being like the only Doctor Who fan in your family. That's that's kind of thing. The thing that really stood out to me was you sort of think of your family not really understanding <laughs> your obsession with Doctor Who. Oh yeah. Uh and, and for me as well, I think not be not understanding being me being an introvert or being really into reading as well. It was uh so it kinda of, kind of had a wider thing than that, I think, you know, that, other than being a Doctor Who fan. But I, I imagine resonates with, with Doctor Who fans as well. Is that that your experience mark yeah definitely felt that way for me it very very it felt quite personal um sort of being very introverted and being that quiet bookish child and um, there's a bit where little jerry's in bed hoping that the doctor will maybe come and save him from this situation and i remember you know i was a quiet kid i got bullied i you know quite often you know doctor who was the was my um go-to it was my comfort blanket mm. and my escapism and I would, you know, genuinely, you know, sit in school assembly, sort of 
daydreaming and hoping that you know maybe the TARDIS would just land right about now and take me out of this situation. So I think um, anybody that might have had a similar experience growing up, and especially any introverted fans of which there are many, will probably feel you know pretty touched by the by the story that unfolds and the experience that Jerry has and. Um, his mum Claire, her sort of trying to understand it and be sympathetic, but also you know she's 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 quite challenged by his behaviour and the experiences that they have. So it's a it's a, it was a very heartfelt story. It's very touching. And Jason, did that did that resonate with you? My experience of being a Doctor Who fan is basically word for word identical to Mark's. So just take what he said and put it in a New York accent. <laughs> <laughs> and i think that that and and that journey as well was of you know his mum saying that you know like that this stuff isn't real like basically like stop telling people about it um you know it's um it's it's you know keep it to yourself keep your own kind of uh, just journal uh, of, of what you've been dreaming about it, it sort of speaks of the way that you know, a lot of Doctor Who fans become very creative, I think, um, into, you know, whether it's doing, uh, you know, podcasting or writing fan fiction or like, you know, the kind of the amazing art that you see online that, that Doctor Who fans produce. So I think it's that idea of sort of channeling that into something uh, is is really well represented in this story. Um, yeah, but then in terms of, of, yeah, sort of keeping it to yourself as well, like I'm very circumspect even to this day about being a Doctor Who fan. You know, I don't really... Uh, let people I work with, you know, know that side of myself or anything like that. And a lot of that comes from being a fan in the 80s when it was something that you were sort of mocked about a bit um, mm. that I've, I've never really got over and, and sort of have the idea that people won't take me as seriously <laughs> uh, if, if they knew I was kind of a, a big Doctor Who fan. So I think there's just loads of la- layers and levels to this book. Yeah, there, there really are. I very much felt that. And it did, uh, you know, I'm recognising a lot of the same things you're saying as well, Mark. Um it was very much something that I talked about so much as a kid. <laughs> I was always getting told, you know, stop bringing it back to Doctor Who. Be quiet. Stop yeah. talking about Doctor Who just for a minute, will you, please? <laughs> so um, it is something that only relatively recently I've started to embrace my fandom a bit and go out and embrace it a bit more in this last year or so and go to conventions and do podcasts and talk about it openly with people, which is not something I'm accustomed to. It's something I've uh, there's always an inner monologue going on quite happily talking about Doctor Who all the time and pouring over things and details, but I don't engage with people and talk about it very much. So it's a, you know, it's quite a, quite a release. And I think poor Jerry <laughs> in the story, it does, he does struggle with him to try and hold that in and rein himself in because everybody thinks it's quite troubling that he's having these dreams and these stories of the Doctor and imp- sort of impinging on his life. Um, but it's actually, you know, it's seeding great things. It's sort of, it's, you know, it's helping his family. It's all that is, it's sowing seeds for his future. Um, his meeting Ian and Barbara makes him want to either be a scientist or a historian. Um, there's, there's so much that's seeded right from the start of the story that's paid off at the end. It's a really, for a very short story, it's a very, there's so much in it and it's very well drawn together. Now there's nothing extraneous about this tale everything has a payoff everything has a reason for being there and it's 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 quite a great one i think i think you know it'll touch the hearts of a lot of fans 
Yeah, and I think in terms of that, like, like you say, in terms of being inspired and, and, and influences, it's not just kind of the, uh, the the creative side. You know, obviously look at you know Russell T Davis, Stephen Moffat, all these people who've been inspired to write or work in television because you know they're, they're so interested in, in in Doctor Who. And then your, you, I know you've said, spoke uh, on your podcast, Jason, about the uh, the the influence of the novelization of the Keys of Marinus uh, on your kind of career path as well. There is a stereotype that someone who is heavily into science fiction fandom, and in America you would say someone who's a Star Trek fan instead of a Doctor Who fan, there is a stereotype that if you were a sci-fi fan, you were going to grow up to be a loser living in your mother's basement as an adult with no job and just spending all your time obsessing over this long defunct television show. What this book, I think the motivation for writing this book is to show that is not the case. Jerry, and this is a spoiler for the end, grows up to be well-rounded, grows up to be very successful, grows up to have a wife and children whose names will sound very familiar to those who've memorized the 1960 Doctor Who program guide and grandchildren and has a great career and is a devoted family man up until the end and also maintains a lifelong interest in Doctor Who as well, collecting Doctor Who costumes for his teddy bear, which is a major plot point, and passes it on to his children. So this is a story that shows that you can be an obsessive Doctor Who fan who has the entire 1960s program guide memorized, and you could grow up to be an amazing, well-rounded, successful person. So that is the payoff to the book. Doctor Who fans are not losers who are all going to grow up living in their mom's basement watching Time and the Ronnie over and over again instead of having a job <laughs> and a career and a family. We can do both. We can be losers who watch Time and the Ronnie and have jobs and careers and families. Yeah, there's scope for everything. <laughs> yeah, I think I, I like that idea that it's, it's that thing, it's okay to hang on to childish things. Uh, you know, as, as you grow older, especially where they've brought you comfort and and you know, kind of helped you through tough times and stuff, which uh, which which you know, Doctor Who does for a lot of people. I think def- definitely for me, it was um, you know, it was a it was an escape in tough times in in childhood. Uh, and as you say, Jason, he gets the uh, the teddy bear, which we learn at the end of the book uh, was sold to his mum by the third Doctor. And he really associates it with the Doctor because he's got a similar sort of little costume on and it's this kind of Doctor Bear thing. Um, and again, you know, we're talking about collecting books and things. That's like his physical representation of uh, of Doctor Who and, and something he wants. And then it's the, each time the Doctor regenerates and settles on a costume, uh, they uh, they either, I suppose, have a have a miniature version made for Jerry's Bear or, or uh, uh, run it up themselves on a little sewing machine. <laughs> so it's quite a nice idea the doctor takes the time to do that every time apart from the war doctor he's too busy yeah yeah it, <laughs> it is established in the giggle which is the most recent doctor who episode aired as the three of us record this episode it is established in the giggle that the doctor carries with him the memory of the billion years that he spent as peter capaldi in the confession dial mm. So when the doctor gives his age, he's now a billion years old because he remembers every one of those years. For every one of those billion years spent in the confession dial, the doctor held on to his memory of Jerry, with whom he spent 15 minutes once 
as the third doctor, and kept the memory of Jerry through all billion of those years, and after regenerating into Jodie Whittaker and Shudigawa, still had the presence of mind to remember, after a billion years, to send Jerry updated <laughs> versions of the costume for his teddy bear. That is the kind of guy you want to be friends with. The guy who, after a billion years of being tortured, remembers you and sends you toys, even after a billion-year interregnum. <laughs> yep. I think that was... You must have an Outlook reminder. <laughs> Somewhere in that. It's a setting on the sonic screwdriver. When you regenerate, send a costume to little Jerry in England. <laughs> What's interesting about the book, though, is it is a very... I don't want to say stereo. I'll say archetype. It's a very archetypal Dickensian British family. The father, Ray, is your typical... In America, we'd say MAGA type, very right-wing, very narrow-minded, very harsh, and a stern disciplinarian. But he also has a good career. He is a chemical engineer, and it turns out that he is—he—he he, he works in a pesticide factory. And if you know your 1960s Doctor Who, and if you're listening to this podcast, you do. You know there is a 1960s Doctor Who story that is built around pesticides. It turns out that Ray, Jerry's dad, is one of the pesticide engineers in the factory with which Forrester from Planet of Giants has his contract. One of the things that bothered me about Planet of Giants as a kid is that Forrester is impliedly blinded at the end of the story because the doctor and Ian rig up a little makeshift bomb and it blows up in Forrester's face and he's last seen being led away by the police, clutching his eyes. And for me, you know, when I was a kid, eyes were the most important sense. That was how I read all my Doctor Who. So losing your eyes was a fate worse than death. In this book, it is established that Forrester does not, in fact, go blind and is seen driving later in the story. And Forrester is one of the tertiary or quaternary villains of the piece. It turns out that the factory owner has a vested interest in DN6. And Jerry, of course, having dreamed Planet of Giants, tries to put a stop to it and reveal the truth about what happened. And it gets back to the factory. So Jerry's father gets sick because of working with DN6. He gets minor poisoning. And the next-door neighbor, there's a very nosy husband and wife next door, and the husband is a manager in the factory, whereas Jerry is only a line worker. And uh, the woman next door is always bragging to Jerry's mom about how, oh, her husband is important and yours is not. If your husband gets sick, it doesn't matter if he comes in because he's not a manager. And, of course, that family comes to a uh, suitable, ironic end. <laughs> but it is amazing to me how much of this book hinges upon fandom memories of planet of giants it is amazing to me that in the year 2023 a children's book this is literally a children's book put out by puffin is a direct sequel to planet of giants and brings us up to date on what happened to forrester what happened to smithers and whether or not there was ever justice for pharaoh the civil servant who's killed in episode one of the story 
So it is, it is amazing that 60 years on, Planet of Giants still lives on in the public's imagination, and children are going to be running around the schoolyard, I'm Smithers, I'm Forrester, now, <laughs> after reading this book, presumably. I, I love the fact that this story gave that resolution to, you know, because Planet of the Giants is left on a bit of a loose end. Yeah, the police show up, but the Doctor and co. take off. There's There's no real... You know, justice served here. Um, whereas in this instance, you know, we, we finally find out what happens um, in the resolution. And I wondered how the story was going to tie in. I wondered how Jerry's life was going to impinge on this. And you suddenly go, aha, this is what it's got to do. His dad's a chemical engineer. It's really cleverly played in the story. And then when Forrester starts appearing, it takes on a very sinister turn. You know, it's uh, Jerry's dad Ray starts to fall ill and then Forrester starts turning up and is blackmailing and playing on this young boy's good nature and his positive nature don't tell your parents about what's happened and even masquerading as Santa Claus well that's mm. one that was one of the bits that really actually that gives you quite a chill that's really unpleasant how he does that and it's it was so neatly done and very carefully plotted. I, I loved that aspect. I will say for the nine-year-old readers, for the nine-year-olds listening to Trap One, first of all, welcome. <laughs> Second of all, he's not named as Forrester until the very end of the book. So the stranger mm. who briefly kidnaps Jerry and then goes through the house and steals Jerry's fanfic notebook, if you're a Doctor Who fan... The character is introduced by his eyebrows, so you immediately know that it's Forrester. Mr. Eyebrows. In the, in, the, in the text, he's not named as Forrester until the, the very, very end. But one of the ways that Jerry's mom tries to cope with Jerry's obsession, instead of having him play Neutron Bomb, Neutron Bomb, Dalek Survivor in the playground, <laughs> she has him write everything down in a notebook. So he's writing his Doctor Who fanfic in a notebook. He's writing the plot of the Crusade in a notebook. He's writing the plot of the web plan in the notebook. The factory owner finds out that Jerry is interested in pesticides and hires Forrester to be one of his henchmen. Forrester burgles the home and steals the child's fanfic notebook. Having lost, literally lost, my fanfic notebook earlier this year to an administrative error, I felt that because I too have had my fanfic notebook stolen, never to be seen again. And in my case, it was multiple notebooks, by the way. But yes, all my fanfic notebooks are gone forever, just like Jerry's. <laughs> it worked really well, I think, the way you've got two point of view characters because you've got Jerry and his mum, Claire. So you've got the Jerry's childlike understanding of the world and what's happening. Mm -hmm. So the, the fear of, of being threatened by Forrester, of, of not knowing what's going on, and then Claire kind of really worrying about him and, and her trying to make sense of it as well and thinking, well, is he, you know, is there something really wrong with him because he, you know, he thinks all this stuff's real. Um, and all that with the, 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 and the two mysteries side by side. So how is he experiencing what happens to to the Doctor and his companions? Because this, this sort of continues in line with what was being broadcast, doesn't it? In uh, the, the the years match up because it mm -hmm. takes place over a number of years, and it, it matches up with with what which doctors were being shown on TV in those years. So it, it gets through to the uh, up to about enemy of the world, doesn't it? The uh, it goes up to. 
uh, which is uh, which is really cool. And and then the mystery of what's going on in his own his own little town and why his dad's ill and and he's being threatened and things because. The TARDIS travelers never find out where they are in Planet of the Giants, do they? The, the town or anything isn't named, I think I'm right in saying. So therefore, mm. Jerry doesn't know that it is somewhere. It's like the next town over from him. Uh, is it, They name it as Tullyford or something like that in here. So yeah, so we get those uh, those headlines and, and we kind of know that and make the connection, but but the characters don't. So it's it's quite cleverly done like that. Oh yeah, and there's the small talk. It helps add to that extra layer because you've got the the neighbour Lillian talking about it. Oh yeah, and apparently the man ended up shooting himself. Somebody thinks he drank poison, and um, there, there, it's everything plays in so cleverly to that. And you've got um, the mum Claire's concerns about this, and, and you know maybe mm. you know, and the Ray falling ill. Um, there's it's. I, yeah, I can't praise the story enough because I just enjoy. I, you know, I've read it twice, so I, you know, I really, I really enjoyed it, and I found it as touching the second time round as I did the first. Um, there's a lot that I recognised, you know, from my own upbringing. Um, you know, you've got Lily and the neighbour with her hostess trolley, and you know, she's she's checking yeah. through the curtains and seeing what's going on. And she's <laughs> the first one out on the doorstep. Say, oh, didn't I see your son getting brought home by the police this morning? And dropping poor Jerry and Claire in it because they were going to try and keep quiet about something that happens. Um, it's, it's it's such a domestic little story, and and the impact. I mean, Claire's really the heart of it because you have her her real concerns for her child's well-being and trying to keep the house afloat and the relationship with Ray, which at times is really deteriorating because he's so unwell and so fixated on his work and trying to keep a roof over their heads that he's so self-involved, he's not really thinking of the others and is very dismissive um, and he's not a very emotionally intelligent man and Claire is having to carry the burden of everything that's going on under their own roof um and jerry's in his own little world and she wants to help him um there, there's there's so much going on there and i think any parent would be quite you know it, it probably resonates with parents as much as it would with a with a doctor who fan some of the things that go on here yeah i think ray in particular is very unsympathetic at times when they when they talk about him uh slippering his mm. kids you kind of really wince with that don't you because that's you know, it's probably a lot more prevalent in the 60s than, than it is now, or, or you'd hope. But yeah, in terms of what I find most relatable, probably, is definitely with my mum, was that fear of what people think of you, you know, what the neighbours think and that kind of mm-hmm. thing, is is very much a big factor here. Even even with Ray, when, um, when Jerry goes missing, and uh, obviously Claire's quite frantic and saying, well, you know, should we call the police or whatever? And he's saying, oh, no, like, we, what will people think? The police have already brought him home once. Uh, yeah. And it's like a young child is missing. <laughs> he's, uh, he's more concerned with their kind of their reputation in the community than, than finding him. Uh, and, and moments like that are a bit kind of shocking as well with, uh, with Ray. But, yeah, there is that general thing. Uh, that paranoia of, of oh you know what will the neighbours think and that but then that that turns out to be a real paranoia because the neighbour is spying on them uh, unknowing unwittingly you know mm-hmm. kind of on behalf of the big wigs at the factory yeah the fact that it's all just you know the fact that Lillian the gossip has instigated a lot of the unpleasant things that happen because she does she what she doesn't want Ray to get above his station. She doesn't want him promoted. So she's she's let on that, oh well, you know, they've maybe got a difficult child and you know, the 
police turn up. You know, you don't want somebody with that reputation working for you. And so, you know, her her big mouth is a, is a big motivator for the for the concerns that go on here. Um, so it, it, it's like the way everything plays into everybody's everybody's goings on play into one another's outcome. Uh, it's it's so cleverly done. I'm, I, you know, I love Jack Rayner's writing generally mm. generally anyway but i do like it all the time but um her what she's pulled off here is really impressive for such a short story she is very very good at the emotional beats and this goes all the way back mm. to her very first doctor who novel earth world which came out i believe in 2001 mm. there's a very emotional passage at the very end of that book about a regular character who's just had a major loss in their life and goes through a, a five-page episode of grief very, very true to life. But that emotional core of the book, which pays off when Jerry finally gets to meet the Doctor at the end, ties in heavily to an encyclopedic knowledge of the 1960s Doctor Who program guide. So Jerry is experiencing these adventures in real time as they are broadcast. So as you guys know, both the War Machines and the Faceless Ones take place on the same day, but they're broadcast a year apart. One is broadcast in 1996, towards the end of Season 3. The other is broadcast in 1967, at the end of Series 4. So when Jerry has his telepathic visions of war machines, it's happening in 1966, and you learn that this takes place in the Doctor Who universe, and Computer Day actually happens. Even Ray knows about it. And Jerry then experiences the Faceless Ones in 1967, as any TV viewer would, but it takes place a year earlier. This is important because Jerry is obsessed with the idea of meeting the Doctor. So whenever the Doctor happens to land on contemporary Earth, Jerry believes that he can just take a day off school and go to the post office tower or go to Gatwick Airport and meet the Doctor that way. This story hinges on the fact that Faceless Ones takes place in 66, but is broadcast a year later. Jerry has his visions of the Faceless Ones in 1967. So he tries to get to the airport and goes missing from school. Turns out Forrester has kidnapped him. But Jerry's mom calls the airport and gets put in touch with the Commandant, who is a character from television. And the fact that she knows about these events a year later is what gets the authorities involved and causes the climax to be resolved happily. This is a book where a major plot point is the fact that The Faceless Ones is not broadcast in the year in which it is set. It's a very, very, very meta, very difficult continuity point, but she manages to thread the needle. The story hinges on the fact that Jerry is experiencing The Faceless Ones after the chameleons have already been defeated. And I thought that was so clever. I remember when I... When I was reading it the first time, I thought, Jack Rayner's too big a fan to make a continuity gaffe like this. What's going on here? This doesn't quite add up. And then you, when it pays off, you go, ah, now that makes sense. So sort of from Jerry's perspective, he's experiencing the stories in Polly and Ben and Polly's timeline. A year has passed for them. So the fact that mum calls up a year to the day after the event and manages to quote exactly what's happened, gets through to the commandant and expresses all these things, um, it's, it's, a, it's, a very, it's very cleverly done. And that suddenly brings Jerry's mum um, onto the doctor's radar. And that's how they end up crossing paths. 
I, I loved that. It's lovely, isn't it? And it's, a, it's another bit I found a little bit relatable as a fan was that thing of when when Jerry has the, the visions in his dreams about where the Doctor is and, and it's like, oh, you know, he's, he's a Gatwick Airport and things. Um, as a fan growing up in the north and, and miles away from anything that ever happened, you know, get the Doctor Who magazine, read about the 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 Momi exhibition or the uh, the Dapple factory in, in Wales having a Doctor Who exhibition, that kind of thing, and being like, oh, please, please, can we go and see that? <laughs> can we make a trip uh, to go and see it? And it's like, no, we can't. We can't go to London just to look at some some Doctor Who stuff. You know, <laughs> uh, it's uh, yeah, that even that. Um, you know, had that 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 second layer of of meaning for me of uh, of reminding me of being a a kid Doctor Who fan. Yeah, and this leads to my concern about the book. I don't know if this book is ever going to find its audience. All right, Doctor Who has this great opportunity for a reboot. Now, we didn't do a breaking news portion of this episode because I was too busy regaling you with pointless anecdotes about my life, but it was announced just yesterday, as we're recording this, that there's going to be a novelization of the next Doctor Who episode, the Christmas special, Church on Ruby Road, and it's going to be written by a very young emerging author who came up out of Doctor Who fandom, and we are getting a rebrand of the novelizations. Instead of having paperback books all with identical Chris Achilleo-style covers by Anthony Dry with the Target logo on the cover to appeal to us fans from the 70s and 80s. This is going to be a hardback book with a gorgeous full-cover Lee Binding painting. And they're going to be rebranding the novelizations at a youth audience because Doctor Who should not be catering to us men of a certain age, the 40s and 50s. It should be reaching out to new fans. These decade books are put out by Puffin, which is Penguin's child imprint. If you're going to go into a bookshop, these books are going to be marketed at nine-year-olds. Imaginary Friends is not a Doctor Who novel. It is not a story about what the Doctor does. It is a novel about Doctor Who. It is a novel about Doctor Who, the television show, as a metatext. Then it's a novel about Doctor Who fandom. If you were a nine-year-old, you are not going to have any knowledge of Doctor Who's 1960s episode guide. I did in the 80s, but even the 60s were recent in the 1980s. A nine-year-old boy who was born in 2013, I guess so long ago that I suppose – who was prime minister in 2013? Like five prime ministers ago. Hundreds of prime ministers ago. (laughs) Somebody born – David Cameron, wasn't it? Somebody born under David Cameron is not going to be aware that David Cameron is a character in the novelization of the crusade. Someone is not going to be aware that the faceless ones doesn't take place in the year in which it is broadcast. They are not going to have any idea that Alan Tilvert has been dead for about 30 years, had massive eyebrows. (laughs) They are not going to be aware that they are reading the doctor who episode guide. So when, Jerry and Ian have this fanboy conversation. No, Stephen didn't die in the Mechanoid City. Stephen survived and is now king of a planet, and Ian is pleased and happy. That's going to sail so far over the head of a nine-year-old reader that they may never buy another Doctor Who book again. Oops, I'm sorry to bother you. I've stumbled into the wrong book series. I'm going to go down the shelf and buy Lemony Snicket instead. Uh, I can't imagine this book is going to work for its marketed audience this book is for us male doctor who fans of a certain age 
who were boys running around the playground, playground playing Daleks. So I don't know who this book was written for. I just know that if you can get past the continuity, this is a terrific book with a very heartfelt ending. And it's more a book about being a Doctor Who fan than it is about reliving the Hartnell years in broadcast order. But you have to have this encyclopedic knowledge in order for the book's emotional payoff to work. So Puffin was the wrong publisher for this, perhaps. I'm just saying this. As a, as, as a, I'm hoping the book finds its audience, but I'm not positive that it will. I think arguably this could be the gateway drug for a little kid like Jerry, though. Over here in the UK, the classic series is now all there, bar the, an unearthly child, for them to watch from start to finish. So there could be a kid that gets this at Christmas who then goes to the iPlayer and goes, I want to fill in these blanks. This, uh, you know, My mum or my granny says that's, that's actually based on a story that happened on TV. It's on iPlayer. Should we, do you want to watch it? This could, you know, this could be the making of many a fan. These are the people that are going to keep things going in years to come. <laughs> Here's the thing. When my PBS station got the Hartnell package in 1985, when I was at my first Doctor Who convention in Manhattan in 1985, and they screened the movie format of Dalek Invasion of Earth over two and a half hours, I was on cloud nine. I had the program guide. I already knew about these stories. I was very excited to see them. But I am old enough to have grown up with a black and white television. Until 1984, a lot of the television that I watched was black and white. I understand the visual language of black and white. The child born under David Cameron, or in the case of my daughter, born under the presidency of Barack Obama, doesn't speak black and white and has very little interest in watching black and white TV. Before the giggle aired, I dug out my Lost in Time DVD and I put on Celestial Toymaker Episode 4. And I watched it as a lead-in to The Giggle. Then my daughter was going to watch The Giggle with me. She's on the couch TikToking. Then at 1 o'clock, I put on Celestial Toymaker Part 4, and I'm watching it. And I'm, you know, I'm wrapped, and I'm riveted, and I'm mesmerized. And my kid, when it's over, politely says, well, that was interesting. <laughs> and I was trying to see it through her eyes. It's 10 minutes of Stephen and Dodo playing hopscotch with... Penfold from Danger Mouse, only she doesn't know that it's Penfold playing Billy Bunter, although she will have no idea who Billy Bunter is, and I'll confess, as an American, neither do I. The subtext of Celestial Toymaker is going to be lost on her, and her only reaction is, wow, it's very juvenile. Then the giggle she really enjoyed, and if you listen to the Trap One episode on the giggle, my daughter does cameo on that episode with a brief feminist critique of the David Tennant doctor. Black and white is not going to work on a nine-year-old who's buying this book in 2023. And if they're going to try and watch the full Hartnell, they're probably not going to make it past episode six of the Daleks. Maybe they will. If they're an old soul like I was, bless them. That is the most wonderful thing in the world. I think it's more likely that a nine-year-old now is going to want to do the full Eccleston and the full Tennant. Um, possibly not the full Hartnell, the full Troughton, the full Pertwee. The fact that the climax to the, the the emotional climax to the book takes place in Unit HQ is going to be lost on anybody who was not born after the year 1985. Or 1987, I'll point out. <laughs> oh, yeah, there we go. There we go. You're an old soul like me. <laughs> I think there is probably enough information in here. I, for me, the emotional payoff was the very end of the book with Claire alone, widowed, being watched over by Dr. Bear um, and getting Shooty Gatworth's costume uh, 
that's for me that was the emotional payoff and i think that didn't really rely on a lot of doctor who knowledge you know if you've seen you know a trailer uh which is um very ubiquitous at the the moment as at the time of recording with uh with shutigatwa uh for the the christmas special the church on ruby road i i think um i think probably most of the information you need in there to follow the story is there because it's the story of jerry and you know you get you get the idea that they're following each doctor who story i think yeah it, i mean obviously it's hard to to put myself in the mind of a nine-year-old reading it um but i was a voracious reader i'm sure i would have uh, i'm sure i got something from this but the the added depth reading it as you know a doctor who fan who's middle-aged now no i am <laughs> that that it is really it reminds me of being a, a child uh, and being a doctor who fan and um yeah, and then when you know at the end when it is about kind of losing people and things like that, you know, you, you got that perspective when you're older as well. So it's, uh, but yeah, I, I take your point, Jason, that it's um, it's aimed at nine year olds, but we we get a lot lot more out of it. Uh, so it's uh, yeah, it's I'm pleased that it exists though, and it was published <laughs> in some form because it is a really beautiful book, and uh, I'm definitely going to read more of the uh, of the decades collection. Yeah, it's, it's a proper love letter to that era of Doctor Who. I think a fan that does know the continuity won't be, you can't help but be touched by what, how the story plays out and what happens. Um, and I really do hope that some kids will come to it and hopefully the continuity won't be too much of a, a bar from them, you know, engaging with it and then maybe going to read further stories and engage with other stories. Um, of this range, this is probably the most continuity laden. The others, um, I think the next after that is probably um, Angel of Redemption. You have to know your your Matt Smith, the 11th Doctor timeline quite well to, to really fully understand that one. The other ones, the characterizations of the Doctors that appear are solid enough that whether you're familiar with your 9th Doctor, your 4th Doctor and Romana or the, you know, the 10th Doctor and Donna, you're going to be able to grasp these stories well enough. Um, so I think, and I think this one, it's interesting because the doctor's just, you know, seeded into it. He's, he's part of the, the, the narrative, but not the driving force. So it might, you know, it, I'm sure it'll appeal to people regardless. Um, and that's, I think what I like about imaginary friends, most of all, it is a love letter, but it is a non cynical love letter. Doctor Who fans of a certain age, and Jack Rayner is of the right age group. She came up in the 1990s with all the authors of the New Adventures, who are now grown men in their 50s and 60s. Well, the male authors, anyway. The NAs were a love letter to Doctor Who, but they were a cynical love letter to Doctor Who. These were fans coming to terms with the fact that their favorite show was canceled and is now in the wilderness years. And nobody remembers it. And these books are selling to a much smaller audience than the Targets did in the 70s. Their vision of old Doctor Who is a cynical, dark vision colored by the era in which they were writing. There is a running plot point throughout the NAs and then their successors, the EDAs, that all the old companions are being killed off. Dodo is killed off in one of the books put out by Virgin Publishing. Liz Shaw is killed off in one of the books put out by a virgin publishing a lot of the companions come back and they have nightmares and ptsd there is 
a past Doctor adventure put out by BBC Books where Ian and Barbara are the leads, but Barbara developed cancer from her time on Scarrow and has nightmares about, about her time. Mel comes back in one of the Virgin books and repudiates the Doctor. Perry comes back in one of the Virgin books and repudiates the Doctor. It is a very dark time in fandom, to the point that when Justin Richards writes Sometime Never, which is the wrap-up of the final EDA story arc, he goes so far as to say, yes, all this was happening because there was an alien entity that was messing with the Doctor's timeline, and I'm going to put it all right. But you have to go through 14 years of the books going off and killing off or torturing past companions because it was a cynical, dark time to be a Doctor Who fan. All that's different now. Russell T. Davies took over the show and put the love letter to show on the air. Joe Grant is given a horrible final book. Um, in the Joe Grant comes back in one of the first Eighth Doctor books, and her life is horrible, and she commits a war crime at the end of the book. And Joe Grant has been destroyed in the Doctor Who universe. RTD says nuts to that, <laughs> and he gives her death of the Doctor. In one of the Eighth Doctor books, we learn that the Third Doctor gives Sarah Jane nanites in order to be a companion to protect her against alien infection, but those nanites prevent her from getting pregnant. So RTD ignores that and gives us a very happy, carefree Sarah Jane in the Sarah Jane Adventures. All the stuff that happened in the books is now out of the canon. And now when a companion comes back like Mel, it's a joyous occasion. She's not going to slap the doctor across the face. Jack Rayner is writing from the RTD perspective of the love letter to Phantom and not the 1990s perspective. This is a happy, joyful book. And most importantly of all, when the third doctor shows up, he is not the nasty, evil third doctor of Paul Cornell's fiction. He is a happy, emotional, nice third doctor, which is not 1970s fans' memory of the John Pertwee era. So this is a warm book and not a cynical book by any means. And that I think is its biggest selling point. It's a nostalgic book in the RTD vein and not a nostalgic book in the NAs, EDAs, PDAs vein where nostalgia is a bad thing and everyone's life is miserable. And, and that's probably what got me the most about it. And having read it twice now, both times it affected me that ending. I, I, you know, I find it so, it was really touching. It was so heartfelt I was happy that they got the ending they did. Dean and Barbara are still together, and you know there, there's you know there's lots of little nods and you know it's yeah. I'd rather the companions had a happily ever after than the miserable outcomes that they do and the cynical endings that you that you talk about. Because I, I remember reading uh, Genocide when Joe Grant comes back and that timeline where she's divorced from Cliff and she lives alone and she's childless and she's miserable and. It, that, that's not what you would wish upon these characters that you love. Mm. Um, so, the, so the fact that you know this sticks with it, the much more nicer continuity of the present day, where everybody does get their happily ever after, the companions go on to greater good, and people whose life, people's lives that have been touched by the Doctor, such as Jerry's, go on and they have a happy outcome. They have their happily ever after. It's lovely. It's a, it's a warm hug of a book, isn't it? It's yeah. uh, it's, it's it's lovely. I I thoroughly enjoyed it. Again, read it twice, and definitely one I think I'll revisit uh, in years to come. It is a remarkable book. The prose is effortless. The emotions are perfect. You have to be, I think, the right kind of fan to get the most out of this book. But fortunately, we are. 
yes, mm. yes. I think it definitely it it went in our favour that <laughs> we got yeah. this. Um, and yeah, I heartily recommend it. I think um, I, as part of my sixty for sixty, I, I it's probably one of my favourites for the whole year. Um, and quite a few people came back to me and said, "Oh, you've sold me on this. I really want to read this one." They've not said that about many of the other reviews I've made. So it's obviously <laughs> <laughs> it obviously it obviously is going to resonate with a few people and and sounds appealing to certainly a sector of fandom. Put it this way: if you go into a charity shop forty years from now, and the only Doctor Who books for sale are Genocide and Imaginary Friends. Do not buy Genocide. Buy Imaginary Friends instead. You'll be much happier for it. Yes, listen to this message from the past. This is the book where (laughs) Joe Grant does not commit a war crime. (laughs) Nor should she ever. (laughs) Exactly. Well, hopefully more people will pick it up uh, on the back of this as well. Although we've we've comprehensively spoiled it. But uh, if (laughs) if they were wavering and they've listened to this, then uh, hopefully they'll enjoy it. Yes, hopefully we've sold it to somebody. More than somebody. Many people. Yeah. And hopefully the estate of Alan Tilvern is given royalties for the fact that he is remembered in the year 2023 primarily for his eyebrows. (laughs) (laughs) So, Mark, you've you've read this as part of your 60 Doctor Who books for the 60th year challenge. Uh, As we record, we're halfway through December. How, How is that going? Um. <laughs> <laughs> I've been um, I've been a lot more sociable this year than I had anticipated, and I've been travelling a bit more than I expected. Um, so my reading goals are behind. Um, I am about fifty-two books in now, so I've got to somehow cram in eight books between now and New Year's Eve. And I've now read this twice, so I don't know if that counts. <laughs> As, as an extra one, <laughs> or not. But yeah, I, I'm mostly down to reading the shortest possible targets I can lay my hands on because no way am I going to get my target otherwise. You can read all eight of Terence's, Terence's books from 1979. Those are about 100 pages each. You could probably finish those off in the next 15 days. Yeah, I think that might be the way forward because I've, I've now done The Invisible Enemy. I've done Destiny of the Daleks. I'm trying to pick out other really short ones. So I, I, I think I think I might be able to do it, assuming I just ignore people for a few days between now and Christmas. <laughs> Next up on Doctor Who literature is The Crotons, which is only 115 pages. So I can probably pause that off this weekend. That's a, But I didn't know about this. This is a great idea. 60 Doctor Who books for the 60th anniversary. I wish I had thought to do that consciously. Instead, I just did my ill-advised... 60 best episodes for 60 years, which was a fun project, but 60 books would have been phenomenal. What was the, were you looking for any particular line of books in particular? Because obviously there were the four Doctor Who lines during the wilderness years, and now there's the new series Adventures, and there's all these peripheral books aimed at children, like these Puffin Decade books, and then of course there's all the targets. Were you planning on reading 60 specific books or was it just the whatever book happened to come up to the top of your reading queue it pretty much ended up being the latter um i've got i started getting collecting doctor who books when i was eight or nine years old um there are still some in my collection some of the the bbc books that i have i've not read and i've had from about for about 25 years now on the shelf um i've moved and they've moved with me and i've gone i will get around to that but my collection's grown as well because i want to fill the gaps and i want to get them all and i want to read them all um 
a few years ago, I stumbled across a lot of the new adventures in a secondhand bookshop in Edinburgh and got about 30 new adventure books for about two pounds each and, and just filled my bag and was like, I'm having them all. I think I've read seven or eight new adventure books in total. <laughs> um, so I, I'm sitting with literally hundreds of Doctor Who books that I haven't read. I've read loads of Doctor Who books, but I've still got so many more to go. So I thought this year would be the good motivation. I was like, if I set a target, it'll get me to read quite a few of them. And I thought, I'll try not to read anything I've read before. So I think we did the, Mark and I did the Daleks at the start of this year on Trap One. We discussed that. And that's the only book that I had read previously because we were doing the nice, pretty illustrated edition. Um, and I thought, I'll try not to buy any new books this year because at the start of the year, there hadn't been a lot of announcements. And then along came the Decades Collection and new targets and various other new targets that are going to come along in near future. So I've ended up reading a whole dose of new books and very few of the old ones that have been sitting on the shelf. But that's just the way it's worked out. <laughs> I had the entire collection. I had all the NAs. I had almost all of the MAs. And I had all of the EDAs. And I had every PDA but one. But living in New York City, I didn't have room in the end to have all those books in the home. So they mm -hmm. all lived in two boxes in my in-law's garage in suburban New Jersey. When they were getting ready to downsize and move across town to a smaller home at the beginning of this year, I went through their garage, I inventoried my stuff, and I found buyers for the EDAs and the PDAs and the MAs. I wasn't going to keep those, but I was going to keep all of the NAs for myself. That was my line because those mm -hmm. came out starting when I was 18. When I joined online fandom, Records Doctor Who, the NAs were basically the center of gravity for the group for a long time. So the NAs for me are my special happy place in Doctor Who fandom. My mother-in-law then pulled the house off the market, so I thought I had a little bit of extra time. So of the 12 boxes, I said, one of these you can get rid of, save the other 11, and I'll be back for them before the move. Mm -hmm. Immediately after she pulled the house off the market, she hired her handyman to clean out the garage and forgot to tell him that my boxes were off limits. So mm -hmm. he junked, put in, you know, hired got junk and got rid of seven of the boxes. By the time she, I imagine she told him to stop, 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 don't do that. So... When she put the house back on the market, I went back to the house, and this was in the spring, to collect my stuff and give my stuff to its buyers. And only four boxes were left. I'm like, where are the other seven boxes? And she wouldn't even have the decency to tell me what happened. I've had to piece it together. She said, I don't know. Ask your father-in-law. So I asked him. He goes, I don't know. Ask your mother-in-law. <laughs> so those boxes didn't include just my NAs and my MAs, but also my mixtapes. And there was one box of very valuable first edition 1970s baseball autobiographies that I got for like a dollar a piece when I was working in a used bookstore. And those are all worth a lot more than that on eBay. And then, of course, all my mixtapes from when I was a kid and all my Doctor Who fan fiction notebooks from when I was 11 and 12 years old. All that stuff is gone forever, except four boxes were saved. Then wouldn't you know, almost with surgical precision, the four of my 11 boxes that I wanted to keep, the four that were left were all stuff that I couldn't care less about. Books that I bought that I was never going to read again. Um, all the boxes with all the DVDs were gone. It was just books that I didn't care about anymore. So I, some of the books were worth saving. 
And there were about six BBC books left, including The Eight Doctors and the last five EDAs. So I said, you know what? I'm going to rebuild my collection. I want to buy all the NAs back. Now, some of them, of course, are worth, you know, $200, $300 on eBay. So I don't have those yet, but I've got about half the collection. Ross from Gallifrey's Most Wanted actually sent me a couple of his for free. And then I bought five off of Tony from the Doctor Who Target Book Club podcast. So I've got about half my collection rebuilt. And you can get the whole collection at Galley. Some, of course, are a lot more expensive than others. So when I'm in Los Angeles in a few months, I'll, I'll buy a few more. Then I'll get the whole collection back eventually. But I, I decided to sell the orphans that I had left. So I put them on eBay. And with the exception of Steve Cole's To the Slaughter, they all sold pretty quickly. Here's the point of the story. As I was shipping The Eight Doctors, the Terrence Dix book, I didn't put that up on eBay for a lot of money because it was the first BBC book sold. I think it was the best-selling Doctor Who book of all time until the new series Adventures came out. I sold it for 20 bucks, and I got 20 bucks for it. What I didn't remember is that I bought that book at the Chicago Doctor Who convention in November 1997, at which Peter Davison and Fraser Hines were guests. As I was packing up the book to ship, I realized that the cover page, the inside cover page, was autographed by Peter Davison and Fraser Hines to me. Oh. Now, once you make the sale, you're not going to tell the guy, whoops, sorry, I want to keep this one. He can have to the slaughter instead. <laughs> so I debated for a moment the ethics of using a razor and just cutting out the title page and saving that and framing it for myself. But I figured that would have been low. You know, some books have two title pages. The Eight Doctors does not have two title pages. So I ended up selling it to him, autographs and all. So what I may have to do, since Fraser and Peter come to almost every U.S. Doctor Who convention, I may have to rebuy the eight Doctors and pay both of them to autograph it for me. That'll cost about 100 bucks in the end, which is a lot more than I paid in 1997. But, uh, yeah, that was, that, was, that was the collateral damage. That was the collateral damage to my mother-in-law decimating my Doctor Who collection, losing my autographed copy of the eight Doctors out of spite. <laughs> no yeah that's why that's why i can't afford to be sent like anything that i'm sentimental about cannot be trusted with i cannot trust my mother with it it's as simple as that all my doctor who books number of times i moved as a student they had to move with me if they'd gone home and my mum had stumbled across them and decided that day that she was having a clear out that would have been the last i'd have seen of them so yeah the, the books stay with me they're absolutely sacred <laughs> The targets have stayed with me. The targets are in a plastic bin in my home. They followed me cross-country all the way to Los Angeles, and then two years later they followed me cross-country all the way back to New York. I'm never too far from the targets. It was the, the NAs. I should have given the NAs the same treatment. I should have kept them under lock and key in my home. But I didn't, and now I'm recollecting them. There was a guy on the Doctor Who Targets Facebook group who wandered into a used bookshop, I think in Oklahoma, and they had the used bookstore in Oklahoma had just acquired somebody's abandoned and foreclosed storage unit and had like all the NAs and all the BBC books. And they were they didn't know what they had, so they were selling them all for a couple of bucks a piece. So somebody is now sitting on copies of The Dying Days and So Vile a Sin, you know, the most valuable books from the end of the run, having bought them for literally pennies on the dollar. 
I keep waiting for that to happen to me. But unfortunately, used bookshop salesmen in New York are a little more savvy. (laughs) I've been quite lucky with a lot of the books in my collection because the most of the targets that I have, I've bought for maybe fifty p or a pound. Um, Generally, Edinburgh, some of the charity shops, there's quite a good um, sort of underground. Quick, there's targets in this charity shop. Yeah. And people, people will notify you. So somebody told me about some in Stockbridge a while back. I literally booked the afternoon off and went, I need to leave now. <laughs> <laughs> cross, cross town, got there and managed to get about at least a couple of dozen for my collection for a pound a piece. And then earlier this year, there were some in the Salvation Army store going for 50 pence a piece. And I managed to get things like Black Orchid and just fill a lot of some of the gaps in my collection so i'm down to needing about 12 more target books now it's the nearest a complete collection of any of the ranges i've got my daughter was in sleepaway camp in rhode island over the summer so we're hanging around providence rhode island which is the nearest big city to where her camp was and i'm you know what we're on a road trip let's find the local used bookshop found this really great used bookshop in Providence. And, you know, you know, you know, the kind of place that I mean, you know, the books are piled up, you know, three rows on the shelf, piles on the floor, separate racks. I'm like, wow, this is amazing. If any place is going to have Doctor Who books that are unknowingly being sold for much less than you can get on eBay, this is the place. So I nervously asked the proprietor, where are the science fiction books? And some used bookstore proprietors are very stuffy and will go, oh, we don't stock those. But this woman had a big sci-fi collection in the basement, run to the basement, did not have any doctors. But out of the corner of my eye, I recognized that she had a display rack, which had all 32 Dark Shadows novels written in the 1960s and 70s. And she was selling all of them for $2.50 a piece, which is, again, much less than those books go for on eBay. Those books do not quite have the literary merit of some of the Doctor Who books, but they were a big deal in the 60s and 70s, and she had the entire collection. But she didn't just have all 32 books. She also had a book of vampire jokes that was supposedly written by uh, Jonathan Frid, who played the main vampire on the show. So the first weekend that we're there, I just said, you know what? I'm going to buy the first four for $10. I'll buy the first four books in the series. And I pulled my phone out and I said, these are the first four books. And then I'll, if I like them, I'll come back and get the rest next weekend. So the following weekend we went back and I had this nightmare during the week that I went to the bookshop and every other Dark Shadows book except for the one that I wanted had been sold. So run back to the shop, run down to the basement, hands trembling. Sure enough, the display rack is still there. All the Dark Shadows are there. I buy them all. And there was also um, a photo diary taken during the filming of the first Dark Shadows theatrical movie. So it should have been 34 books in total. Buy them all. She puts them in a big brown paper bag for me. Put the brown paper bag in the trunk of the car, drive it back to New York the following day. Get home and I start inventorying. Number one, there had been a torrential rainstorm and somehow some of the rain leaked into the car trunk. And the bottom of the bag got wet. So the bottom four books developed water damage, which they did not have in the store. So the bottom four books were stuck together. And as I was pulling them apart, the covers got damaged. This may significantly hamper the eBay resale value if I ever want to resell them. Um, The other point is my dream ended up being prophetic. 
as I was inventorying my collection of what I thought was the entire run of 1960s and 70s Dark Shadows paperbacks, I noticed that one book was not there from my trip the previous weekend. The book of vampire jokes, ghostwritten by uh, Jonathan Frid, Barnabas Collins, somebody had come in during the week and seen the Dark Shadows collection and ignored every single one of the novels but bought the book of vampire jokes. And that was the only book that wasn't there. Who does that, first of all? If you are a used book collector and you see the entire run of Dark Shadows novels, you buy the whole thing. Instead, all they did was buy the book of vampire jokes and leave everything else for me. That's a real head scratcher. <laughs> that was somebody with just the one gap in their collection, clearly. <laughs> That's not what I need, the book of jokes. That's the one, hallowed ground. Now, the publisher still exists, but, you know, publishers are bought out and consolidated, so the original publishing company has gone through, like, seven or eight different owners. But the building that they were publishing out of in 1966 through 1971 was one of my former office buildings in Manhattan where I used to work at the dawn of my legal career uh, 20, 20 years ago. So those books are – I mean the books are fun. I mean Dark Shadows, even though it's a soap opera and it had to film daily rather than an hourly, weekly sci-fi show. So there's a, there's a lot of dull filler episodes, but it was a great series and it has a big pop culture footprint. So I couldn't get the NAs, but I did get all 32 of the novels, minus the book. Of Van- and I'm sure the jokes were terrible, but it's the principle of the thing. I was going to buy that book, and somebody came in during the week and bought that one book and left everything else. Now I'm going to have to buy the book of jokes just to be a completist. Yeah, it's, it's, it's the thing, isn't it? Once, you, once you've got the collection started, it's like me with the targets. The ones that are missing from my collection now are the ones that are prohibitively expensive for my budget to get from eBay. You know, I can't get a copy of The Rescue for less than 50 quid. And I, I can't justify that. <laughs> yeah, The Rescue is one that I need as well. I've, I've, um, I'm about three or four books short of, of a full set of tires. I don't think I've got a full set of anything. The nearest one I've got, I think, is The New Adventures, and I don't have The Dying Days. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I bought them all as they were released at, at just the cover price. So I've not, you know, kind of overpaid for any of them or anything. But... The Dying Days was one that, yeah, just, just couldn't get hold of. Even though the, uh, the my local bookstore at the time ordered them in specially for me, they, they couldn't get that one. Uh, and then I didn't realize how hard it would be in those days as well. Otherwise, I would probably have spent um, <laughs> a bit more time kind of uh, mm-hmm. trying to seek it out. But, yeah, I do, it's a big part of, uh, I think, being a Doctor Who fan in, in my childhood was – uh, you know, sort of secondhand bookshops and charity shops and and that kind of thing, car boot sales of, uh, of of trying to trying to gather target books and things. And the um, the, the poster that that you two maybe see behind me is the one that mm-hmm. Doctor Who magazine put out a couple of years ago with all the target covers on it. And um, I don't really uh, frame any of those posters, but I think that one really connected my to my childhood to that extent because it was that kind of thing of. Uh, Anytime you go somewhere new, it was like, let's find the second-hand bookshop. Like you say, Jason, when you, when you go somewhere, I'm still like that now if I'm somewhere in the mm-hmm. especially a charity bookshop, like an Oxfam bookshop or something. I can't really resist the draw of, <laughs> of going in and uh, checking if they've got any Doctor Whos. Oh, yeah. You never, you never want to miss the opportunity. I think the collector's gene is always there, and it's quite strong once it takes yeah. a grip. Um, even like, I mean, this range was announced it was a case of, right, this is going to cost me more than 60 quid to get the whole lot, but I have to get it all. 
I, I don't want to have an incomplete collection on my shelf now. You know, any, anything new, I need to have them all. <laughs> well, I've only got this one so far, but I enjoyed it so much. I'm, I'm definitely going to get the, uh, I might just kind of buy one a month or something like that as a, as a kind of little payday treat and, and move my way through them. Mm, it's, it's, it's a nice range. I think they're, they're all really good stories. And I think there's three absolute standouts and Imaginary Friends is probably my, my favourite of all six. Well, that's, that's our episode on Imaginary Friends by Jacqueline Rayner. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you to Suki for the guest reading. Uh, thank you both for joining me. Join us next time on a new panel. We'll be discussing something else from the world of Doctor Who. In the meantime, find all our previous episodes at trap1.podbean.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you very much. Goodbye. Thank you. Bye, guys. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>